Hello, welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, where we celebrate the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. I am Adam. I'm Alex. I'm Greg. I'm Elijah. And I'm Paul. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at keytoallmythologies at protonmail.com. Also, please visit our website, keytoallmythologies.com, which has a reading schedule if you'd like to read along with us. And asking our opening question today is Elijah. So we're looking today at book five of the Aeneid. Most of the book is taken up with these funeral games that mark the one-year anniversary of the death of Anchises, Aeneas' father. Um, and so there's a ship race, a foot race, a uh, boxing match, Aeneas' son, then his chums come out and do some uh, formation drills. And then the gods come and stir up the Trojan women and they, they try to set the ships on fire. So my opening question today the presence of funeral games in epics is one trope I've never been able to fully appreciate. I'm never, I'm never quite sure what they're doing in the narrative or how to interpret them. Reading book five of the Aeneid, I wonder if they're a loose collection of tales with almost Aesopian morals, studies of individual characters, a study of Aeneas's leadership, simply a chance for Virgil to show off his poetic ability or something else entirely. They feel quite luxurious and open in a tale that, it, that is otherwise taught, direct, and focused. My question is, how should we understand the funeral games in book five? Or, put as a challenge, convince me that funeral games are an important aspect of the Aeneid, and perhaps, therefore, of the ancient epic generally. I have kind of a similar question about scenes of the games in the Iliad and the Odyssey and in the Aeneid to Elijah. We've developed some themes as we've been reading so far. And I think some chief ones are the importance of piety to the to Aeneas and to the Trojan character, which is obviously reinforced here. And the importance of lineage, which is also reinforced when you get the, the games are in celebration of the, the year of, Aene of the death of Aeneas's father. And they end with this kind of celebration of the the Trojan youth marching and doing mock battle scenes. And also it's, I guess it's probably worth noting in there. Another theme is the veneration of ancestors. And in each of these contests, the old, I think in all in boxing, archery, sailing and running, I'm not sure about running, but the, definitely the first three, the oldest contestant is, is, is honored in some way at the end, even though the archery doesn't technically win. So that seems important as well. But I feel like that's, again, doesn't really answer the question. I mean, it does seem like all those things could have been accomplished in just one set piece, just archery or just boxing or... I think I really just don't get what games meant to the Greeks or Romans, because it just feels like a detour that's not as important as battle. They spend so much time evoking the games, which makes me think, think the games have to be important in and of themselves in some way. I sort of want to resist the reading. I think my instinct is to say, well, this is to show how Aeneas is a pious leader, or this is to introduce us to the other characters that are around Aeneas and what they're like, or this is even to venerate old age. But there's some part of me that wants to say, no, that the games are viewed as intrinsically worth telling about. 
that's the sort of hypothesis that I'm sort of trying to test with this question. And, and it seems like, again, again, particularly within the context of the Aeneid, which is so focused, right? It doesn't feel like anything's wasted. Virgil spends a lot of time describing the tit for tat of each of the contests. That's the puzzle to me. Especially like, the, it seemed to me the boxing was the strangest one. Almost the longest set piece in the book so far has been that boxing match, you know, which didn't, I didn't really understand what that was doing. Except to say, in, yeah, in this like sort of obvious way, don't discount the older guy, even though he's not immediately as strong. You know, he has, he understands strategy and he can outlast the younger guy and he can, the gods favor him. But that seems kind of, yeah, obvious and bland. I mean, don't you guys think that sport is just really fundamental to civilization in general? I mean, it's still, it's, it feels like, especially in our culture, it's one of the few things that actually still brings people together at an almost universal level. I think sport and, and competition, friendly competition is something that unifies people, brings them together. And I, I mean, I take it that these games are, are, are things that continue to all happen during Virgil's time. So I think it's also play. I think part of it is too, like kind of showing the origin of these games and like why they still do it. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to like. I don't. I hope that doesn't sound like a, a. I'm like dismissing the question or something. But it just strikes me that sport and competition is super, super vital to a, a healthy civilization. I was thinking of it in terms of something like what traditions can the. Romans claim they actually inherited from the Trojans or it seems like this work is trying to like lay out all those aspects and yeah oh I, I really am interested in what you're saying about making the games choice worthy for their own sake and I think they have to be but I also I also like to theorize about the causes for things and make them responsible to others so I want to do that first because I feel like that's the easiest bit so it seems like the question is, okay, what can poetry immortalize that they will be proper inheritors of right, the Romans, right? And it seems like the games establish the Romans. You could say, oh, their laws come from Troy. And that would be interesting. You can't write poetry about the laws coming from Troy, though. That would, that would just be boring and stupid. So like what kind of path can they draw back in time to it? And it seems like it's two primary things. It's veneration of the old which I think is actually very distinct from how the Greeks venerate the old. The old men are like strong, powerful. They're not whiny and they're not constantly obsessed with the past that no longer exists. Like they are, they're very much like the architecture and the leaders of the society, as opposed to the Greeks who it's like these really young spirited dudes who say, yeah, my father's really in charge, but who's, you know, who gets all the glory? It's Achilles and, and Diomedes who's, maybe barely 18 in the story, it feels like. Those two things, I feel like are part of why these games occupy such a huge set piece because this constantly feels like the assertion of the existence of old age over the young and that you can't have that struggle occur in war. It's almost like an anti-civil war, right? In a, in a civil war, it's an actual conflict. You have young guy, Julius Caesar, he's going to take the he's going to wipe out the republic and institute a new reign so who does he go up against old guy pompey i guess they weren't that different i always thought of pompey as an you know maybe this is like a historical i always thought of pompey as the older kind of generation and caesar as the up and coming but i think like in, in light of something like that 
you have this thing where we're, we're repositing the tradition, right? The, the old triumphs on a, on a physical level over the young and therefore the tradition is preserved and kind of like reasserting that after like all of this bloodshed, the Senate cast has been like reshuffled, seems kind of really part of this, giving Rome its old age back now that the youth have created a new kind of Rome. That still asks the question, like, why, why does that like reassertion of ancestors, the older generation, happen through sport in particular? If I'm really going to go with my theorizing, this is a reversal of the triumvirate civil wars and Augustus's civil wars. By tying this to an actual physical triumph that can have metaphysical or traditional or like historic implications, you can kind of like reify this like ancient tradition or like resever or rebuild it as opposed to its destruction. And it seems like these people fundamentally recognize triumph. Omens have to be backed up with some kind of triumph. And that's what makes an omen work. Or there, there's this constant like correcting that goes throughout the poem, right? And we saw that in the last line where like Polynurus gets killed, but Aeneas doesn't understand why he got killed or what's going on. So there's all of this, ooh, there's a mistake. And there's like a true way of understanding the situation that's, that's just behind every like death or every loss. And it feels like if it's proper to have the old men rule, there has to be proper activity and it can't be founded in war because the old men lost the civil war. So where will that have happened in the ancient past of the game? But they don't win strictly speaking the, you know the so the archery contest Aeneas buries the mast in the ground and they tie a dove to a string a rope I guess and four archers and the dove is you know fluttering around in the wind four archers are trying to shoot at it and the the first archer misses and the second archer or the second archer severs the string and the third archer is your is a Eurytion who's a young like a young, beautiful boy. And he, he shoots the dove in flight, right? And then the fourth archer is Acestes, who's the older, from the older generation. He just lets his arrow fly into the air, even though the dove's already been shot and the contest is over. So I'm going to read, this is the end of the archery section. Uh, Acestes' chance was gone. He still let fly an arrow to the upper air, which showed his bow resounding skill, though he was old. An omen flashed, its meaning the great outcome proved in the time to come, when fearsome prophets chanted of signs that lagged in their fulfillment. The arrow soared in flame through flowing clouds, burning a path that faded out and tattered in breezes. Thus a star that's been dislodged crosses the sky and trails its hair behind it. Both Trojans and Sicilians were astonished and begged the gods to keep them safe. Aeneas the Great revered the omen and embraced happy Acestes heaped on gifts and spoke. Accept these, father, since Olympus's great king has marked you out for some supreme distinction. This embossed bowl, a precious gift from Sisius, keepsake and token of, our, of a loving friendship, belong to my own old father, my own father, old Anchises. So he gives him the laurel, and then Eurydian does not, did not resent it, but he doesn't get anything. <laughs> he doesn't get any gifts or rewards of any kind. So you're saying that even though the older bowman doesn't 
actually accomplish anything and the contest is over when he shoots his arrow i mean he's just blessed by the gods right his arrow becomes like a flaming star through the clouds yeah i was thinking more of the boxing thing where the old guy literally just beats yeah the young guy almost to death like to me even there they even there they do say the gods are on the gods are against you well in every victory though the gods have to be with you right like that's what victory is like victory is itself a god yeah, I mean, the other thing I was thinking of is, is like comparing it to the they they these charging game these games felt so different than the funeral games in the Iliad, whereas like in the funeral games the Iliad it felt like it was all about accepting death. All these games were actually ultimately like not silly, but the people playing in them somehow deeply misunderstood their situation. Uh, this was like a forewarning of the doom coming to so many of them, right? Like, oh, we're gonna have a good time because we know that in less than a year half of you will all be dead whereas this game literally like we have to set this up because tradition is at stake because what it means to be the old is at stake because how the gods function is at stake like it it just felt so much more tied to ceremony which i think is has to be about some kind of assertion of old people are correct things happen for a reason here are the reasons here are the rules here are the laws take them or die on one level, it happens in the physical level in the boxing match. And then with the archery thing, right? He, he fires the arrow longer and it like lights in fl- flame. And well, that's way more of an accomplishment than shooting a bird. But it's <laughs> yes and no, I guess. I mean, I, I feel sort of weird to pair with the boxing thing because the boxing in the boxing match, the older boxer wins with prowess and strategy. But the older archer is just given the laurels because when he shoots his arrow, kind of just as a celebratory gesture at the end, the gods turn it into a shooting star, right? And those things don't seem quite the same. Yeah, they're definitely not. I mean, like literally the the boxer does win. Is it the old guy who wins in the the ship racing thing? Uh, He like lays it out, right? So it's the chimera is the one that wins. Yeah. It's Colanthus. I don't think that the ages are as relevant in the ship, yeah, ship race. One. The oldest He's guy that's the, discussed is the one who gets thrown off, <laughs> gets thrown over the side for not navigating with enough brio. That's right. So yeah, because I remember he like he's dripping, but the gods kind of spare his life or something. Like he's safe yeah. from drowning. Yeah, I don't it's know. Okay to, it's okay to laugh at old people when they <laughs> fall off the side of a boat. Well, he's, isn't he pushed off because he, he he's he's like yeah, too slow? Yes. I I can't help but read these things as not metaphorical proper, but just like etched with symbolic meaning that I feels essential, but I can't fully, you know, chart out. And maybe that's to Elijah's point about like these things just make no sense to us. I mean, I take Paul's Paul's point that that sports and competition are an important part of of civilization. I don't think that's I mean that's yeah I think that's true. I mean, it, they're they're so essential. I mean, it's like how like Michael Jordan for um, America. Like he's such a key figure. Like young men grow up wanting to you know mimic his greatness, his excellence. I think it's a huge cultural touchstone. And you can imagine like you know Roman people comparing themselves to these to the you know the the ship race focuses on the one who comes in second, right? He's the one that like has to like come from behind. And like you can imagine like a Roman seeing themselves as like an underdog, but overcoming great odds to like not necessarily win, but still like this, you know, accomplish something great. 
Well, that's why I want to talk about the funeral. Like funeral games is almost like a founding myth. They assert that the Trojan people are a real people. Ordinary founding myths are like, yeah, you inherit the laws or yeah, you inherit the whatever, but that just can't be done in a poem. And so it seems like the games are a much more proper way to show that Trojan civilization continued after the fall than other kinds of assertions about, oh, we, we inherited these written texts from them, especially in the context too of, it feels like the Romans aren't an intellectual people. So what they would properly want to inherit has to be some kind of prowess if games legitimately unite the civilization. It'd have to be on some kind of mode of prowess. And again, the martial one is already established separately. So it's got to be the games. Well, I wanted to ask about the connection to warfare, because I think the way I thought about it, and I think many people think about it, is that games fulfill a similar function to warfare, but they're safer, they don't cost lives, so it's something you can do in an intramural way to sort of get the benefits of warfare for young men and for your culture and for cultural unity and all that. You can get that through games without actually, you know, losing all of your young men's lives, right? And so I think if that's really the case, if really games are just a sort of lesser form of warfare that's safer, my question is, is it that games offer the same thing as warfare, just maybe in a diminished sense, a lesser sense? Or is it that the games offer something different than warfare? And if it's the case that games offer the same thing as warfare, in a literary text, there's no cost to just portraying warfare. So my question is, why would Virgil go with the games instead of warfare when he could have just as easily invented a battle scene that had similar things going on? I would say they cannot be lesser warfare. I don't think they offer something different than warfare necessarily, but it really wouldn't make any sense if it was just lesser warfare, especially because it is costless to Virgil. But I think the context of the poem is set about an era, era of perpetual peace. So it's pro- the poem promises a perpetual peace. I think the games give us an idea of what that peace might look like. And I think with the Trojan games thing, which is the specific game that Ascanius slash Ulysses plays and the, all the young boys, that's obviously training for war. But that seems different to me than the boxing or the arrow shooting or even the ship prow, which I also think was really interesting because the ship one is one where it's, you know, 300 people are in each of those boats. So it's not a game like any of the ones the Greeks ever played. Like this, this is a, a civilizational game, the boat one, where it's you need an advanced set of people with a certain organization as opposed to the mob of Greeks who show up on the shores of Troy and burn it to the ground. So it seems like this is some kind of exercise of their uh, of like their status as a city, as a people that, and, you know, there's that one line where I think it's in the boat game where, where they, they talk about how they're going to win more glory or like if they win glory in the game, it's, it's worth even their lives, which is, is not even, I feel like that's not even a theme echoed in the Iliad, right? People are always talking about gaining glory, but no one says give up your life for glory. There's an idea of even sacrifice in these games of humans that seems to have emerged in the meantime. 
the boat thing se seemed really significant to me too because like that felt very different from the greek games i mean the greeks were the greeks loathed the water right and where sailing was not like something they really prioritized or or thought highly of and it felt like this was this was one way virgil was kind of differentiating roman culture from greek culture too well this is a really capable sailor but it, it seems like it's dangerous almost in homeric time that it's it's not play in the same way whereas with romans well partly too is also slaves are a key part of how the boat works right you gotta you somebody's gotta pull the oars and it just it was just it's weird to win glory in that in the same way the closest thing i can think of is chariot racing where the horses help you win just as much as you do but that seems so still tied to the excellence of the of the charioteer or something that's a good point to bring up because one of the things I wondered about is just how all of these uh, Trojans who are on this journey are apparently proper citizens of Troy who escaped the carnage. We don't really get any description of people being slaves on this journey. That's why I thought it was also interesting about the the women being thrown into a frenzy of whether to burn the ships or stop other people from burning the ships there. They were citizens of Troy. They've been displaced. Seven years have gone by. They are not allowed to participate in this ritual of the games. So they have this opportunity to be distracted by by Juno and Iris and goaded into uh, burning ships. The, the timing of that event is so bizarre to me because it's just like this whole thing is just like such a celebration of, you know, these people and like, it's just, it's, it's funny, it's lighthearted, you know, and there's just like great, you know, accomplishments going on. And then all of a sudden Juno just comes down and like, threatens the very like I mean he says like the future their future is like put like instantly thrown into question by this moment I don't know I just I did not know what to make of that and it also just like raised the question of like what do the Romans think of Juno like what is the status of Juno for them is, is she just like this reviled god that you know they yeah I don't know it was so it was so bizarre to me that placement I don't know if you guys I think that's one of the reasons I guess that I, I mean I'm hesitant or maybe I was hesitant to think of the the games and their placement here as yes it's clear that this is a this is the source of a tradition that the Romans still hold and that's important but it, it does seem like Paul that they have these games and they're in the middle of this moment of celebration and then like immediately the gods remind them you're wasting your time this is not what you're supposed to be doing the very next thing that happens is their ships you know are on fire like they're, they're in the middle of celebrating the games and they look up and holy shit all of our ships are on fire and we get another mention when, when Aeneas has another dream where his father reminds him you know you are you are literally tortured you're tormented by the fate of the fate of Troy or how Troy's fate tortures you that's a that's a sentiment that comes up over and over again for Aeneas is that he is being tormented or tortured by the fate of Troy also one thing that I think that in this book that I don't quite understand is the way that these symbols are balanced so they're the games are set between two fires which I 
is interesting. And it opens with a rainbow and storm clouds. The rainbow is a good sign and the storm clouds are bad. And then it ends with a rainbow and storm clouds, but the rainbow is a bad sign and the storm clouds are saving grace. So I'm not sure what that means exactly, but I thought it was pretty strange how, yeah, they were set between fire and fire and all the, the, the two, the interplay of fire and water changed on either side of the games. Specifically, just to give more context, right? Iris, who appears to confuse the Trojan women, she is represented as a rainbow. A rainbow. She, she, she takes off as a rainbow. And so the ships are burning and Jove sends the storm to use rain to put out the fire. Right, but in the initial setup, when they flee from Dido and Carthage, they're driven off course by a um, ferocious storm. Wait, and Adam, when you said the first fire, you're referring to Dido's fire? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So they see Dido's funeral pyre that she has built for herself. Or that she's... A, yeah, she builds it for herself, right? And right. then she kills herself, and then they put her on that. So they see her funeral pyre. They're leaving her funeral pyre. Go. The storm blows them off. Polinar says, oh, the storm, you know, the storm's too dangerous. So they stop. They set up the games. And then, like, Rainbow's like the relief, right? So they set up... The, then they set up the games. Rainbow yeah. comes in, ruins everything. Fire happens. Then rain comes. And then they head out to open seas. And then Polinaris dies. Yeah. The trick of the gods messes with them. And so the, the guy who saves them at the beginning of the book is dead by the end on clear calm open waters and Aeneas says that crazy line is like oh Apollonaris how could you have trusted the calm sea it's like what like his <laughs> life was just completely snatched away by God for no clear reason the other thing I wanted to say that was like really mirrored was when we we're talking about the Dido thing it seemed like we were really reading sympathetically towards Dido but here it feels like the misogyny is so strong towards the women who just for no reason Fly into the yeah, yeah, it's like these crazy, <laughs> stupid women. I could, I could, I could barely read it any, any way other than saying, like, oh, this this text clearly sees views women as a massive liability to the history of their culture, and the, it almost completely changed how I needed to look at the Dido thing because I was like, this level of misogyny seems to be incompatible with the way even you know Augustine was talking about sympathy for Dido on the altar and stuff. It's like no women are just completely crazy. They're out of their minds. If you ever stop watching it for a minute, they will destroy the future for you. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, you know, I, I just had no idea how to reconcile. Yeah, I mean, it was, re it was really, yeah, it was really noticeable. It was like, we're going to watch the men and the young boys engage in this like glistening, you know, beautiful um, Marshall contest and then we're going to check in let's see what the women are up to and they're on the beach gossiping and setting fire to the ships <laughs> the only like no the only sort of like note that I could find there that leavened that was that they were just so sick of the journey and they I mean, you could eat you know you can have some sympathy for them I think to imagine them being there and they're finally have this like peaceful moment to talk to each other you know and they have this reasonable complain which is like we've been sailing around meandering around for years and years and nothing's happened we're back where we started why don't we just stay here what are we even doing you know i mean that doesn't seem like 
an irrational frenzy or something that seems like a perfectly reasonable response and i think that that note is there a little bit but i agree that it's it's hard to read any other way it's just yeah, a massive exercise in i kind of thought of that the, the first simile in the book that we read in book one where uh the storm is compared to just like a mob of of angry commoners and they need a they need a strong a strong leader to come along and and settle them down or they're going to destroy everything it felt like if you just leave all, <laughs> if you just leave all these women to just talk to each other on the beach, they're just going to turn into an angry mob, and they need someone to come along and recreate order. You know, they need a strong leader to recreate order. I was struck by like a a possible parallel or relation to the Iliad in this description of the the Trojan women. So I thought I'd just read uh, line six twelve. Uh, the Trojan women stood and mourned Anchises on a lonely beach. They gazed out at the deep in tears and all deplored how many seas remained to cross, how it exhausted them. A city, not the sufferings of voyages, is their quotation. So the parallel with Iliad right here in Aeneid Trojan women mourning Anchises and also thinking about how much longer the journey will take since it's already lasted seven years. I remembered in the Iliad when the, uh, the women were mourning Patroclus. So they, they mourned for Patroclus, but also for their own sorrows. I thought that was a good parallel with this uh, description of the Trojan women. Again, the language emphasizes on a lonely beach. These two events are totally separate. The, the sexes are completely separate in this book. The men have their contest and the women are just lonely, left alone on the beach. So it seems like part of the founding myth is actively based on the exclusion of women. And that's why Venus is taken up as Aeneas's father like the fact his wife has to die so that um, he can go to sea and that it's it's the patrilineal father-son father-son piety that is passed seems like a really important part that I still haven't been it's almost like the city can't be passed on unless women are excluded and so Venus becomes the catch-all like figure for women or it's like we're replacing all these individual women with this like abstract model of femininity who we will use to further the historical existent patrilineal connection. But if there's any kind of matrilineal thing formed that would somehow compromise the patrilineal myth. And I, I don't know how to talk about that other than just saying, like, it seems to be something I've observed where it's like women get replaced constantly in this book with the abstract. Or if they are specific, Dido, they're obstacles, not ways forward. The other thing I was thinking of is it's really interesting to compare this with the Greeks, too, because I, I, you can't even tell which one's more misogynistic. With the Greeks, it's like the women are present. They're active characters in a way they don't seem to be, in the, with the exception of Dido, in the Aeneid. But they're, they have so much less power, whereas in in Virgil, by Virgil's time, it seems like the women can actually destroy the fleet if you don't look. Like they, they possess immense power. It's just purely like negative or anti-historical. 
whereas like in in the Greek narrative, you know, it seems like Helen and Penelope are probably the best drawn female characters and they possess circumstantial power of like they're the pole star that the men orbit around but they themselves aren't executing these like you know dido is queen she is an actual ruler and like the, the what the women the women actually destroy or would have actually destroyed the fleet were it not for the intervention of zeus so there's like this weird sense where it's women's circumstantial powers exchange for this material power but the material power is seen as like a constant impinging threat on destiny or some kind of like historical necessity part of this the symbolic meaning of the separation of the men and the women is i think this has something to do with it with sleep too i don't know if maybe this just relates to pelindris falling asleep and falling off the lookout of the ship at the end of the book but there's a kind of domesticity or a hearth or like the pleasure of home that these people are seeking and it's constantly being denied to them and the gods won't allow them to have it. And some of that's like associated, I think with the, with the feminine and with women. Um, although I don't really know how that would work with Dido being the queen, I guess. I mean, but Aeneas does sort of fall into a domestic relationship with her and that imperils his, the forward motion of his inevitable destiny or whatever. Yeah. I think maybe that makes a little bit of sense out of the, out of the end with, was Palinurus falling asleep on the lookout tower and then falling into the ocean. He kind of like gives in to this gentle sleep. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous scene because he's like Aeneas' right-hand man and he's supposed to be a great, a great warrior. And he just, <laughs> he just like lazily falls asleep and falls into the sea on a very dignified death. But yeah, I think definitely there's a, this book clearly associates women with, yeah, like the hearth and the home and domesticity. And that is, some kind something that's worth eventually pursuing or establishing but it's definitely an impediment to like the masculine quest for glory and destiny or something like that kind of along these lines i'm wondering so the women are on the the beach by themselves and was this intentional in other words did did they land and aeneas did aeneas say something like okay my father's died it's been one year we need to do what is appropriate, what is proper, what is pious. And what that means is that us men are going to go over there and we're going to play a bunch of games in honor of Anchises. And you women, you need to stay over here and you need to clo cloak yourself in sackcloth and ashes and weep and weep for my father who's died. And you doing this thing over here and us playing these games, somehow these, these are both necessary activities. The one is a masculine one and one is a feminine one. So that's one version of understanding how the separation that we perceive in this book came about. I think the other option that comes to mind is the women were never going to be welcome at the games. And Aeneas sort of was like, well, we're going to go play these games. Just do whatever you want. In the context of this journey, you're an extra, even though we need you when we get to the city in order to sire children and whatnot. And then the women started mourning and grieving on their own. I mean, of the two activities, right, of the games and of the sitting and weeping, it's actually the activity that the wives, the women and the women are doing that makes more sense as a grieving activity. And so I, I'm sort of wondering, I guess, about the initial logic that causes the split. And just starting with the question, does it seem right to you that Aeneas would have designated for them to go to find a, a space and sort of mourn and grieve and cry? as a way to honor Anchises. 
and she says does that seem like a plausible reading of of what happened in this the weirdest thing i think about crying for anchesis is that nothing sad about his death you know so aeneas weeps but he's so barely set up as a character this is like another big difference between the greek funeral games in the iliad and and anchesis's where he he's he's barely a character he's mourned but again like we have no introduction to him he's more mourned as troy itself or some kind of like symbolic figure than a real character who who had this profound effect and patroclus takes up like a quarter of the iliad in some ways he gets more screen time than achilles gets so when he dies it's this deep loss that's felt by everybody and you know he's this like very human character who will then get replaced by the more frightening and divine ones so there's this very weird like very personal and character driven mourning but but i just can't imagine feeling even bad for anchesis but apparently like you know everybody's well i don't know the, the men just don't right they're like they're having a great time and that logic makes sense for anchesis because like, <laughs> the only person who seems to have ever cared about him is Aeneas, and even when he's around caring about him, it's more like I'm doing my sonly duty rather than like a deeply human person has been lost. Like, no, this is like the duty, like there's just no, in some ways, piety replaces love. In the Iliad, like love is the grief of the death of Patroclus, but in in this, it's like, it's just piety or or ritual. And like, well, I guess I have to do this. It even says, he's like, Oh, the gods have trapped me in this ritual. I have to do it. And it's like, good God, is this not your father? Like, do you have no emotional connection to this character? So, it, yeah, in, a, in some ways, it feels like the women's, you know, ululations are the same kind of performative ritual as the men's are. So I have a really hard time telling which one's more proper to it. I think the idea that it is the loss of Troy itself is is on the right track, though. Because, I, I because like, in Kisa's... I, he is kind of the patriarchy still, right? And so I think the the tone of the the tone of the uh, the games is is one of mourning, but also celebrating that Aeneas is now is firmly like the leader. You know, he's he's the one that's clearly in charge now, and that's yeah. sad because it's you know it does symbolize the lineage death of Troy. But it's also a celebration because now we have this future to look forward to and we and are in good hands of you know Aeneas. Yeah, he's called Father Aeneas, and he's also referred to as the Patriarch. And then like on the next page, Jove is referred to as the Patriarch for the first time, I think, in this book. Yeah, you're mourning the death of Troy, but it, it is proper to mourn and ritualize and remember the deaths of our ancestors and i feel like that's just kind of a in the same way that the split there's like a, a very clearly typed split between feminine and masculine in this book there's also a clearly typed split between father and son and ancestor and progeny you know and i think those things are all as much symbolic as they're supposed to represent real relationships or real people uh, you know kind of as you were just saying i think it helps a lot because it, it just feels like symbol or or type is always interfering with character in in this book right like 
everyone is so dominated by history, by these like really abstract concepts. I am a father. I am a son. You know, and, and it just feels like it, their characters are so positioned in it. Even like it seems like the most emotional human person we've seen, which to me is Dido, still is completely caught up in I am a woman, I am a queen, I am Carthaginian. Yeah, spurned, Where, a spurned yeah, lover, yeah. Exactly. Everyone's so tied to these categories. They're always like losing their personality or, you know, uh, the, the, I guess the etymological sense of persona is what their real being is, right? That they're the masks that they're putting on and their social functions. That seems so different from the greek thing where you could just you can really ever pin down what a person was yeah i think you take it the other way like or well maybe it's similar or in the vein of what you were saying but one way to think about the 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 fires the pairing of the two fires here is just (laughs) the very straightforward reading that anytime passions get out of control like shit goes bad (laughs) it ends in a fire (laughs) and i i'm hesitant i don't think that's the only way to read that but i do think that as a piece of propaganda for a strong central leader that's a very clear message here and that is present in this poem i don't think there's any way to deny that's part of what's happening right well that's a a value that seems to have stepped in in the time between the iliad and this poem too right whereas in the iliad and the odyssey if you're passionate it's great you're going to get stuff done um you can actually like leave the island that you're trapped on and you can get glory that way whereas here passion and, and it's almost like mistake or something seem to always go hand in hand the, the the line i thought was really great on 675 aeneas right so he runs in there he says what are you doing have you lost your minds and that that feels already completely alien to the greeks lose your minds what does that even mean right they i don't know if they could ever ask that question Poor Trojan women, it's no hostile keep Greek camp you're burning, but your future. This is me, your own Ascanius. At their feet he dashed the helmet. Oh, no, Ascanius is running at this stage battle. And then Aeneas rushed in with a host of Trojans. The women scattered, panicked on the shore, then skulked away to the trees and rocky hollows. Shame drove them to the darkness. They awoke to, their, to know their own and free their hearts from Juno. And yet their raging fire didn't slacken, right? So uh, that's literally just feels like, a, you know, a scholastic teaching where the activities and the motions of the, the faculties in the heart can exercise actions that will be encountered for a longer duration than the emotions themselves. So it is proper to contain one's emotions in the dark quiet parts of ourselves <laughs> so there's not a misalignment between the duration of our actions and the duration of our emotions um, that, was, that was a fantastic that was a fantastic uh expository <laughs> scholastic <laughs> lesson it's pretty impressive extemporaneous scholasticism yeah it just feels like it's that's just laid out it's almost a basic teaching and i feel like there's an ironic thing in that because of the dido scene but after after this scene, I now have to go back and say, is there, is there any irony to this? You know, and, and maybe it's like the author's intentions don't matter and trying to figure out who Virgil is, is just, that's always gonna get away from us. But there, that is so bizarre. Or maybe another way to put it is, it feels like the tension between 
this doctrine where the passions are dangerous and we have to watch them always creates the excess that might lead like us moderns to start to turn away from that doctrine or the ancient Greeks to have never sought it in the first place. One part of the irony is that the very task that they had initially was to express passion for the passing of Anchises, right? To sit there and weep. And so they start doing this perform this prescribed narrow role. Mm, and then at point. some point it starts, it takes on a life of its own and uh, becomes much <laughs> bigger than this sort of very mm. uh, narrow ritual mourning, right? And that is how they justify it. They say we're mourning Anchises, we're mourning Hector, we're mourning Troy. You know, they say we will be the ones who build the walls, right? We'll make the walls happen. These men are lost. They keep trying to get in ships to go find the walls elsewhere. We've got uh, Kestes. Yeah, Kestes to go build the walls for us. So we'll just do what the men don't understand. And we'll destroy the hated ships. And that'll solve the problem. That's really interesting because I thought one of the loveliest and strangest little images in this section in this book was like, during the archery contest, it's be around 510 through 520, when Nincetheus uh, shoots the arrow and he cut a freeze the, the dove. And it says, she sped off toward the storm clouds in the south. Uriton had drawn his bow already. He quickly aimed while praying to his brother, who was a great archer, with joy and clapping wings, she'd reached the free sky beneath the clouded darkness when he shot her. She fell and left her life among the stars, but brought to earth again the piercing arrow. So I just, I thought it was really interesting that Virgil records for us the joy and the, the, the one moment of joy and freedom that the dove experiences when she thinks she's free and then she's immediately shot <laughs> with an arrow because it, that is followed then by the arrow that's turned into a shooting star and a flaming arrow in the clouds. It's a, it's a parallel with the, the Trojan women, right? They are, <laughs> they're like the dove that is tied to the masthead with the rope. And then all of a sudden they're loosed and free doing what they were supposed to be doing anyway, which was flapping around and being joyful, but not too joyful. They get out of control. <laughs> they're immediately caused some sort of chaos so that it's followed by fire. But I do like that there's this little moment of, of freedom and joy. I, want, I started wondering along those lines, like if, if this poem in general doesn't kind of serve as that for the Roman people, like there, there is like this great celebration and this does seem to be like, you know, generally like about this triumphant founding of Rome and, you know, whatnot, but there always seems to be like Juno lurking in the background, like, you know, and it's almost like a warning, like it's a, it's a weird kind of founding myth because it's not just simply triumphant. I wasn't clear. What did you all make of the line when when Venus entreats Jove to take pity on Aeneas and the Trojans? Line 785. Venus is saying to Jove, Bates and Jove's orders cannot break or halter, referring to, to Juno. It didn't satisfy her vicious hatred to, to tear Troy from its people and devour it or drag the bones and ashes of the city through all this. She must know why she's so livid. So is Venus there saying that the, the source and the reason of Juno's rage is like unclear or unknown to her, to Venus? So yeah, I'm thinking, Paul, that Juno exists in this poem as a kind of 
mechanism to expose the dangers of too much joy or too much freedom or too much passion or too much femininity, maybe we could say. And Venus is here saying like, we don't even know why she's so rageful. She's just like this personification of, of rage for no per to no purpose. Well, the double irony there is Venus herself is the personification of, of excess, excess passion. And the whole thing she rots with Dido, you know, she comes to this like completely, you know, innocent woman and just unloads the, the most desperate, insane passion upon which the, she's forced to kill herself. And so I think there's like a lot of rhetoric in Venus's speech to Poseidon where she's like appealing to his masculine sense that, oh, women are crazy. And she's saying something along the lines like, oh my gosh, Poseidon, you just, you're just so crazy. You know, how are we going to deal with this raging lunatic woman? It's like, you better assert your masculine control and fix the situation again. But constantly the person who's most aware of the excessive passions of women, you know, is the woman who herself who seems to be able to control and channel her passion perfectly to achieve whatever whim she actually wants from it. And I'm wondering if that's like another reason Venus, I mean, like obviously he has to make Venus Aeneas's mother because that's, that's what the Iliad says. But having put Venus as Aeneas's mother, I just feel like we're constantly drawn into the problem of passion is really good. It gives you a way forward. And Venus, the, go the goddess of excess passion, is the clear, direct, insightful way forward. And so the, the weird misogyny of that, I can't even begin to like sort out. It's just this like knot of irony that the Virgil seems to take incredible delight in representing and that's the thing that makes me think like he's doing something weird that i can't even approach in this poem all of these scenes ha again have this double layer of irony like the men are idiots for having funeral games without including the women yeah i mean there's got it's it's got to be some sort of critique of roman that's going on here at the same time too you know and even just like virgil's biography and like again like I agree with you Greg that <laughs> trying to understand the psychology of Virgil's uh, fruitless task ultimately but like, he did have a he did have a strained relationship with the government and like his own family like had had their like possessions taken and he wasn't completely sympathetic to what it meant to be a Roman well and it's I mean it is a biographical fact that he wrote he spent like 12 years right writing this poem and he the first few drafts of it were not were, I think this is a fact, <laughs> he considered too patriotic or something or too propagandistic. And so he revised and revised and revised. Uh, Augustus apparently in, the, in the, the Imperium loved the first draft, but he refused to allow it to be the final, you know, the final product. And in fact, he was maybe planning to not even ever release the poem at all and was gonna, was gonna burn it when he, was, when he died of sunstroke. But that's just an aside. I think even within the poem itself, one thing I was thinking about is, so if you go back and listen to the previous books we've talked about, there's a lot of parallels and we spend a lot of time discussing the parallels with the Iliad and the Odyssey in one, two, and three. And we've discussed some parallels with the Iliad and the Odyssey tonight as, as well. But book four, there are, we didn't talk about parallels nearly as much. And it's, it's more of a struggle to understand book four and because of that, I think. 
because the other four books, one, two, three, and five are clearly in structured alongside books in the Iliad and the Odyssey. But book four really is not. There's only nothing in the Iliad and the Odyssey like Dido. I'm not, but uh, that clearly it's important. I mean, so that's gotta be very important. And uh, I don't know quite what to make of it, but I think that that goes along with yeah, this um, subtle or even not so subtle critique of the martial imperial culture of Rome. In light of all this, can we talk about a moment where I think seemed to me when I was reading it that Virgil was sort of putting forward an ideal of leadership. This is line 325. The danger was that if you let sort of loose your passions, they may sort of become this thing and take on a life of their own. The The danger with any sort of games, right, is that the friendly, friendly rivalry will turn become real and it could turn into really fighting each other really trying to take each other out and there's a moment in the games where this almost happens um, and then Aeneas sort of restores order they're doing the race Nisus is in the lead and then I'm going to pick up at 327 Um, but as they came exhausted to the last stretch poor Nisus skidded on some slippery blood that had poured out and wet the grassy ground when, as it happened, steers were slaughtered there. Already thrilled with victory, the young man couldn't secure his step and staggered, fell face first in the filthy dung and sacred blood. And so already there we have a mix of the sacred and the profane, which for superstitious people heightens the emotional register of the scene to begin with. But with his dear Arialis in mind, he lurched up from the muck in Salius's way. A rapid somersault laid him hard on the sand. So here we have Nisus essentially like cheating in some way, right? So that his friend can win. Through his friend's help, Euryalus flashed by and flew in first with roaring crowds to greet him. Helimus came in next, Diores third, through the whole vast arena where the elders watched from the front, the yells of Salius rang, demanding the award a foul had stolen. The crowd though, backed Euryalus's shy tears in the great beauty of his budding manhood. Diores helped him with his own loud protests. He'd won the third prize, but it would be void if Salius was now to have the first. So you have this moment in the race, the guy slips in the, the blood, and then there's like probably some cheating. And then at the end, there's like four or five factions yelling about what would be fair, what would really be fair. And then Aeneas intervenes. Father Aeneas answered. All your prizes are safe, boys. Nobody will change the order, but I can soothe a friend who's been unlucky. And then to Salius, he gave a lion's pelt and and he sort of distributes rewards in a way that pacifies everybody. And I think about Aeneas in this book is very much, that's a very, in my mind, a very emperor-like sort of thing to do is, is you're sort of presiding, Aeneas is presiding over these games in this magnanimous way and whenever there's conflict, he's sort of overabundant with his gifts, giving all these gifts so that, that any of these sort of friendly sport-like rivalries don't turn into something more serious. And so I'm sort of bringing this up maybe as a, as a counter to the hypothesis that we've been developing, because I do think we would need to account for what is going on here and how this fits in with either the critique of Romanness or an affirmation of Romanness or something in between. I think that's great, Elijah. 
my first couple of thoughts were like, one, it seems like that's premised on somehow kind of having unlimited wealth in the first place. Like I was really struck with the fact that Aeneas is able to so consistently hand out all these prizes because unlike Odysseus, he doesn't go sack a bunch of cities after he wins the war or he doesn't get an unlimited pile of you know money from the Phaikians. He's just carrying around this, this, these treasures. I guess he's, he's escaped and he's, he's freely handing them out. And I guess that magnanimity is a sign of excellence, but it seems like it's prefaced on this kind of, yeah, as you said, like an imperial abundance that Aeneas just seems to carry around with him. But I think on, on another level, it also, the claim that luck wins or loses a game already makes games meaningless in a way that luck didn't seem to matter with the Greeks. So there are all, it seemed like there are, were all of these in the Iliad funeral games, oh, mistakes that could happen or like weird moments, but no one says, oh, I'm so unfortunate. Uh, you just lost, you know, you, get, you, you lose the game, you lose it. But here, all of a sudden, the, the emperor or the leader is the adjudicator of luck and fortune, which basically to me seems like a, these are just different territories competing for the for the light of the emperor itself not for any kind of inherent glory in the game and the the like everything looks back to the emperor rather than the game itself and i and i think that would be it's not a criticism so much as just as 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 a statement of the, the games aren't games in the same way anymore they're always turned back towards the emperor or the empire. And I think, the, I think we also saw that with the arrow, right? Like, and, and the ships even, it seems in every game except for boxing, the mode of rule or governance has almost replaced the game itself. I don't necessarily see Elijah that those two things are in conflict. I think that this, if this is a moment of, of good leadership, that could easily be understood alongside examples of failure of leadership in other places in the poem. I think that's possible. I think Aeneas is always personifying good leadership. I Well, I think the thing I was sort of trying to think through is that in the funeral games, so in my reading, right, in the funeral games, there's this danger that rivalry could get out of control as passions run hot. But in a couple of key instances, you have Aeneas acting magnanimously which diffuses this and, and keeps the games within their ceremonial function without leading to sort of wanton destruction. And with the women who are doing their role on the beach, they don't seem to have any leader, which then the passions sort of are allowed to develop in this way because there's no, and this is, I, I, I think Greg is right that it's essentially misogynist. So <laughs> say that right. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, this is one possible way to understand the argument that the book is developing. So the women are on the beach and there is no woman leader there to like stop the passions from developing in this way. Um, and that's why it leads to the fire. So that would be one way to read both. That's one, one argument for what's going on in the book as a whole, if we're understanding it to be saying something about Roman propaganda. So I guess my question is, I don't like that reading. I don't think it's particularly interesting. My question is, why is why am I wrong? And I'm and I hope that I'm wrong about this. 
Did anyone mention the uh, Barrow, the wife of Doriclus, who uh, on 645, the nurse of Priam's many children shouted, Mothers, this isn't Barrow, Doriclus' wife. Look at the godly splendor shown in her burning eyes, her haughtiness, her face, the way her voice sounds, and her gait. And I myself has just left Barrow, sick and upset that she alone was missing her portion in these honors for Ancases. So she spoke. The matrons didn't know what they should do. Then Iris flies away, and the rainbow appears, and the apparition the apparition made the women shriek. So there's one voice of reason, but the that points out we're dealing with a god here. And then the god, all right, I give up, disappears in a flash with the rainbow light. And the vision is too much for the, the group of women to handle. So they uh, end up in a hysteric frenzy. So, yeah, you have on the one hand, there's at least someone who can, who can try to dissuade the women from doing this thing but then the presence of the gods is just something too much for for them to handle as a group so i don't i don't know if if that makes a claim on on whether women are suited to to deal with gods or or what seems like they can't listen to the voice of reason <laughs> Well, what is most striking to me about that speech is she leads not with, hey, I just saw Barrow. She's sick. She's not here. It's like, oh, that person is shining and beautiful. She's a goddess. By the way, Barrow is sick and she's not here, so you shouldn't pay attention to this person. And I think there's something that's like morally proper about recognizing the divine first as the proper explanation of the phenomena and then directing yourself to, you know, circumstantial evidence but there is something really funny about how she's not drawn to 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 explain the problem and the clearest answer which is no that person couldn't be barrow yeah i mean in terms of what elijah was saying like what's lacking here is yeah a leader right there's no these women are put on the beach to mourn i guess with no there's not a there's not a hierarchy of the matrons and there's no other leader there to quell their their passions. Which, I mean, that does line up with a lot of the things in the book. If I remember correctly, too, uh, pure, uh, nurses are slaves. So having her redirect the women, like she, she has age, which seems to be a source of her wisdom and understanding, and she nurses king's children. So if she is a slave, she's a very high status slave and it's totally possible that in this society you know slavery is not as clear-cut as like oh you're a slave you're worthless or anything like that but mm-hmm. she's definitely can't be at least as far as i i understand their social situation she can't be a leader in any proper sense because of her position basically so it, it's striking that a rich wife who's iris impersonates leads them to the insanity and the slave speech speaks out and they don't, they can't listen to her. And so then the, the rich, I mean, it's, 
is bizarre, right? They're literally called matrons. Like they, they are the noble women of this society enter a deranged state and burn down. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I want to say like there's a recognition. I don't think that it, I think it would be, it would be too much of us trying to make Virgil line up with what we want him to say to claim there is not a preference for the masculine as like as a type and for like a clearly established hierarchy with you know a beneficent but strong leader at the top like I think that is a preference in this poem I don't think you can really get around that I think there there it does seem to be a recognition that something is lost in, when that in that setup that it does that the human being and human possibilities are destroyed maybe that's necessary I mean, I think one thing about that we haven't really discussed, but at the, at the end of this chapter, they all, when Aeneas's father, uh, when Anchises come, comes to him in the dream and says, you need to move on, you know, that the fate of Troy tortures you again, you have to move on to, the, to your next destination. The people who don't want to go are allowed to stay, you know, and there's like kind of a self-selection there. And it's like, they're not really judged for it. I mean, it, it just says, I mean, it's sort of our, it says their hearts weren't stirred by glory or something like that. And so, but there's a, you know, there's a recognition that like, there is a real price that has to be paid. Aeneas, Aeneas himself has to pay a personal price and like just all the people involved have to pay a price to, to do this work of founding the new city, of founding the dynasty or whatever. And I guess I want to relate that to the moment with the dove and, and back to Dido, which seems to be an even more extravagant example of something that is dangerous, but also is, there's something sad about the, about Dido's fate and about the kind of like crushing of passion and the crushing of the feminine and the crushing of the freedom of the dove in preference to the the other thing. I'm not sure that we need to say, I definitely agree with you, Adam, that we gotta be really careful about reading back into Virgil some kind of like modern stance, but I could definitely see Virgil as a committed, even like anarchist, not in the modern connotation at all, just like somebody who's committed to agrarian depoliticized society as opposed to this kind of like modern imperial society and i feel like that is a tension in the poem where it, like in a much more rustic agrarian non-imperial society passion is not a threat to the world historical fabric passion would just be like oh you know the feeling you have towards your sheep and your wife or something um, Whereas it feels like Virgil's playing with, now that we're stuck with this empire and these world historical figures, we're constantly encountering the idea that one, people can have such immense feeling that it is utterly their destruction, but that feeling itself can be the destruction of something far more important than an individual, which does point to the problems, not that passion itself is bad, but, but now that this is the way things are, passion is really dangerous and we need the emperor to resolve it. No, I think that's good. I think we should, uh, we should read the Georgs when we're done with, uh, because that, that is his pastoral poetry. I preceded the Aeneid, but I, we, so, <laughs> in an earlier episode, we stupidly wondered if he knew that um, bees had queens in the beehives. And it turns out he wrote a whole poem about beekeeping and the queen of the bees. And bee, beekeeping and bee husbandry is one of the oldest uh, tested human <laughs> human knowledges. Back there, hieroglyphs about it and everything. So we're ignorant sons of bitches. We said that, but <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good, uh, interesting 
way to phrase it. I think that's, that's, there's something true to that for sure. All right, I'm going to say that is a, a good place to end this episode of the Key to All Mythologies. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us on our quest. And next time we'll be moving on. We're reading um, the Aeneid book six, where Aeneas goes to the land of the dead. Thank you. Good night. I think Sons of Bitches is the exact thing that this poem's central anxiety is over. <laughs> are we but sons of bitches? <laughs> or are we children of men? <laughs>